Last night was the first night of Passover, the Jewish festival commemorating their escape from slavery in Egypt and the first beginning steps on their long road to freedom. I want to take a few minutes this morning looking at the story from a Unitarian Universalist perspective as myth depicting the transformation of a people or an individual from bondage to freedom, from external political bondage and from internal psychological bondage. So take it apart a little bit. First, let's look at Exodus as a story. It is impossible to discern any actual historic events from the tale we read of in in Exodus. No contemporary evidence exists outside the Bible, and plausible reconstructions of what indeed happened run the gamut. There's the literalist reconstruction, which essentially is that Exodus happened in the 13th century BCE, and that the pharaoh of the plagues was Ramses II, and that's just kind of almost a fable, but that's what they think. The metaphorical reconstruction's a little different, and I lean here on one of my professors at seminary, Norman Gottwald. He describes, well, he suggests that the tyranny described in Exodus reflects Egypt's political and economic domination of the land of Canaan in the late Bronze Age, the tribal period of Jewish history. The conquest of Canaan, as Gottwald understands, it came from within. It wasn't that the Jews escaped from Egypt and moved over to the Fertile Crescent. It was that they were an underclass in the Fertile Crescent, and over about 200 years, uh, a period of growing local autonomy uh, brought them freedom. And some of them were inspired by the Yahweh cult. The Yahweh cult was a group of Jews growing in importance who believed three things and affirmed and proclaimed them. One, radical monotheism. That not that there's only one God, but that as it says in the first commandment, I am the Lord thy God who took, who has taken me from thy house of bondage. Thou shalt honor me before all others. That is, you can have minor deities, fine, but this is the real kahuna. Also, the value of covenant, bonding together with shared promises. And third, humanity's utter dependence um, on this Yahweh. In fact, you could say they exchanged Pharaoh for the collective spirit of the people. But in both cases, they went from utter dependence to utter dependence. Now, theirs was an oral culture, and the stories were shared around a campfire. It was hundreds of years before any of the things we read in Exodus were ever written down. But around that campfire, they shared stories of their their God and how it inspired them, informed them, and liberated them. Listen to what the Yahweh Spirit did to us, one says. We were in a battle 
And Joshua picked his horn and blew it and the walls fell down. Others would be talking about, hey, here's what happened to us. We were escaping through the Red Sea and it parted. Exodus now as a mythic paradigm. More than a one-time event. Exodus is happening all the time. Paradigms are like that. They keep on repeating. Myth and ritual also go together. So myth is the story, but the ritual acts it out, as our children's story made clear, as the kids sit around and they do the Seder meal, which is the enactment of the Exodus uh, departure from Egypt. As paradigmatic, it's important to recognize that the word Egypt in Hebrew is the word for a narrow place, the narrow place. We leave slavery behind when we bind together with like-minded, imaginative people for creative purposes and get out of the narrowness of our conventional training and maybe our culture. Of course, there's typically a long time in the wilderness before freedom is realized. Let's take some modern examples. William Wilberforce uh, was the man, more than any other, who um, established the movement to end the British slave trade. And a movie of him, Amazing Grace, about 15 years ago, starring the late Albert Finney, tells the story. The story about the people who worked together to ban the slave trade throughout the British Empire. It's a long story. In the 1780s, Wilberforce had a conversion experience, his kind of personal crossing of the Red Sea. And then he was recruited very easily to the abolitionist cause. He introduces legislation in Parliament for 20 years, generating and sustaining the movement. On March 25th, 1807, this is actually 214 years ago, last Thursday, the act banning slavery passed. Wilberforce's health suffered. He was maligned, and he became addicted. But he kept at it and eventually led his people out of the wilderness. Martin Luther King was another modern liberator. In 1965, through 67, so after the passage of the Fair Housing Act and the Civil Rights Act, Dr. King began to speak about the need for fundamental changes in the political and economic life of our nation. He began questioning the war in Vietnam, the whole American empire, and the militarism that sustained it. Then by 67 and into 68, he voiced opposition to the war and of the support and supported the redistribution of our resources to correct economic injustice. In his famous Riverside Church sermon, which was preached 54 years ago this coming week, Dr. King elaborated. From Vietnam to Latin America, he said the United States was on the wrong side of world revolution. He questioned our allegiance with the landed gentry in Latin America and asked why the United States was suppressing revolutions 
of shirtless and barefoot people in the third world instead of supporting them. In 1968, Dr. King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference organized the Poor People's Campaign to address issues of economic injustice. Martin Luther King's vision was of a renewed America, one, as he put it, that lives up to its creed and maintains its covenant with the poor and marginalized. This is how, in the last years of his life, Martin Luther King grew to understand freedom. He cast the vision, but he never saw it actualized. He was killed, but the vision lived. As a myth, exercise, um, excuse me, Exodus isn't about culture heroes only, people like Moses, Wilberforce, or King, and the like. It's about the hero inside everyone. Mythic events, as I said, are paradigmatic. Exodus is about liberating yourself. Myths are a lens through which we can understand and explain political events, yes, but even more, they are a lens through which to understand oneself. That is, myths describe in poetic, emotional language internal events and passages in all of our lives. Let me share with you a passage from my own life and my own first mythic escape from Egypt. It was just a couple of weeks after I got out of college, I kind of goofed off nearby, and then I went home to Cleveland. This was late June 1972, a Beatles song, Out of College, Money Spent, See No Future, Pay No Rent, was kind of ringing in my ears. I was in Cleveland for three days, but I wasn't there three hours, and my stepfather started hovering over and reminded me to get a job, get a job. When am I going to get a job? And I'll fix you up with a friend I know down at the bank. You can, uh, maybe you can get a job there. Or my friend so-and-so at Cleveland Cliffs Company. Then I got a call from a friend in New York City who said that the Central Brooklyn Model Cities program, was a great society program from that era, um, was hiring teachers. And if I could get to Bedford-Stuyvesant, 150 Hinsdale Street, in the next three days, I could get hired. Meanwhile, Hurricane Agnes is outside, which was a terrible weather, uh, extreme weather event. But I got a ride from my mother out to the corner of the interstate, south, uh, east of Cleveland, and um, she never approved of my hitchhiking, but she took me there anyway. It was pouring rain. I had a pretty good poncho, I thought, and uh, it was almost, within five minutes, it was soaked through. And I got very discouraged, and I thought, well, maybe Mom and my stepdad are right. I should just cut my hair and go back and, um, and get a job or go to these interviews. And suddenly, I just said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm going to try to get to New York. I'm going to try to do this. And until I'm too late, I will keep at it. And within a moment, a guy, a black guy actually, in a brand new Audi pulls over. He says, get in, get in. And, uh, and he drives me down to the Ohio Turnpike. And I went 13 more rides all the way to my sister's front door in Manhattan. 
I was out of Egypt. And on my way through the wilderness to the promised land. It is up to each of us personally to cross the Red Sea within if we ever want to get beyond our conventional programming, programming that can turn a person into a slave. It looks like we'll drown, but it always looks that way. And getting through the flood is only the beginning. It's terrifying, sure, but that's the truth about freedom. Moreover, freedom leads to life, vitality, creativity, And freedom also leads to peace because we have each other, the meaning of covenant. And freedom leads to justice. William Wilberforce and Martin Luther King Jr. both led their people, all people, out of bondage. bondage. The abolition and civil rights movement were moral crusades for freedom and justice. Once we lose that moral high ground, all we have is a power struggle which is and never has been a persuasive means for the weaker to deal with the stronger. But with a commitment to life and one another and to justice, we are free. On our way to freedom at any rate, arm in arm and struggling through the wilderness with our eyes fixed on liberation. I want to make one more point. What? I want to ask, does freedom ask of us? Responsibility. That is, response-ability. The ability to respond to the exigencies of the moment. The ability to be present with the clear focus and deft flexibility necessary to help in any situation. And we have such a situation before us right now, today one that requires the responsibility of everyone in this Zoom room, our mission fund drive. The novel coronavirus has done a number on institutions of all kinds. My first wife's alma mater, Mills College in Oakland, has folded, and many houses of worship are teetering. ESUC is not exactly teetering, but we are in need of everyone's increased generosity this year. Holly House, though a valuable asset, remains unsold. And even when that does happen, the funds from its sale will be months away. Rentals are down and will remain so until folks go back to work and to school. That leaves us two sources of increased income, drawing from the endowment fund or more money from pledges. Ironically, during a pandemic that has devastated our economy and laid millions off from work, the stock market continues its steady ascent, upwards now above 33,000 points. We take a little over 40,000 out every year and put it into the operating budget. But betting on growth and anticipating the sale of Holly House, we have drawn more than that over the last few years. And since the market continues to grow steadily, we can continue to draw from the endowment, but a more response-able response, it seems to me, would be to also, this year in particular, dig deep into our individual pockets. The pandemic will soon loosen and lessen. More and different people will begin to come visit us on our beautiful campus and join in our progressive and spiritual advance. The major health crisis and social turmoil of the last year has made it clear 
we need to cross the Red Sea. And with that huge container ship blocking the Suez Canal, those who disapprove of liberal religion may well be distracted as we scamper across. And guided by our covenant, choose freedom and choose it again and again. Hard as it can be, painful sometimes, but free. Free religion, by the way, is not a free for all. It requires always order and orchestration. It requires a willingness to risk for a reasonable chance of success. And most of all, it requires members able to respond to what is happening now, which in our case this month is the Mission Fund Drive, which wraps up in three days. Please fill out and send in your pledge card. The more of you who do so, the less time we will spend wandering in the desert and the sooner we will have passed over into a new, fully enshrined Canaan. So may it be. Amen. And hallelujah.